Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. This is volume two of the Gingrich and Clinton set to the struggle to chart the direction and purpose of government in an age of American pause. In this period we've chosen for our time together, the Cold War is just over. And in the flicker of relative peace before the age of terrorism is to start, America and its elected representatives are narrowing their eyes on the question of the country's fiscal and economic health. Two men were wrestling over a chicken bone of opportunity to use the budget deficits accumulated over the years and the political appetite for a creative government response to them as an opportunity to reshape the nature of the American system. On the one side, a big, gray-haired baby boomer tinkerer with historic ambition raised by a strong mother and abandoned by an erratic father whose words and ideas tumbled after each other like jerseys in a dryer. On the other side, the same thing. Mirror images with their ideology and their hair parted on opposite sides, fighting to reorient government in a titanic set of battles that until recently marked the most famous government shutdown in American history. More of that story in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is November 7th, 1995. First-term President Bill Clinton is flying with a delegation to the funeral of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who had been killed by an assassin for trying to make peace with the Palestinians. Joining him aboard Air Force One for the 25-hour round trip were House Speaker Newt Gingrich and Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole. Government funding wasn't working so well. Since October 1st, the government had been running on a continuing resolution, a legislative vehicle created to keep funding at current levels until the budget for the fiscal year, which starts on October 1st, could be worked out. This meant the president and Republican congressional leaders were in the middle of fraught budget negotiations. But on that plane flight, the voluble Clinton didn't devote a single voluble to the topic. It was the elephant on the plane. A less popular Samuel Jackson movie. When the delegation landed back at Andrews Air Force Base after having gone to the funeral, Clinton and ex-presidents Bush and Carter, who had joined him for the flight as well, exited out of the front of the plane while Dole and Gingrich were instructed by aides to use the rear stairs. That has to be the most boring whistle-stop lead in the history of whistle-stops. An uneventful plane flight, that's it? That's all you've got to wind up your listeners? No one is going to quicken their pace on the treadmill listening to drowsy stories of tepid transatlantic flight. Look, we're not running a carny show here, so back to the story. It's November 10th, a few days after that uneventful plane flight. And on that day, the Speaker of the House throws the president a curveball in budget negotiations. They'd been having a more or less productive game of catch as they worked towards a new budget agreement that would pick up after that continuing resolution ran out. Each was tossing the ball back and forth until the metaphor ran out. Clinton offered what he wanted for a budget to tackle America's fiscal challenges, and Gingrich sent back the GOP demands. There wasn't deep progress, but the process was continuing along profitable lines. Then, suddenly, Gingrich sent the White House a set of budget demands that were well outside the bounds of what the White House had expected. Gingrich was asking for bigger reductions, particularly in Medicare and Medicaid and cuts in other programs like environmental regulations. It was no longer catch. This was hardball. And so Clinton vetoed the offer, forcing the closure of the federal government. There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. 
Why had Gingrich changed the game in the middle? Well, he was angry that he had been slighted on that plane ride. This is petty, the speaker acknowledged in a November 15th breakfast with reporters about a week after the plane ride. But he added, you've been on a plane for 25 hours and nobody has talked to you. And they ask you to get off the plane by the back ramp. You just wonder, where is their sense of manners? Where is their sense of courtesy? Gingrich acknowledged that his peak at, at the seeming slight had prompted him to send Clinton a tougher spending bill. It's petty, he said. But I think it's human. The next day, the New York Daily News ran a cartoon of Gingrich on the front page, swaddled in a diaper and crying with a giant headline that read, Cry Baby. Now that plane ride lead doesn't seem so boring now, does it, fancy boy? So began the resurrection of Bill Clinton's presidency, a heady three-year period from the budget fights at the end of 1995 to the tippy-top of 1998, when the remainder of his second term would be spent fighting congressional impeachment. Newt Gingrich explained the stakes of the shutdown in early November 1995 as it entered its early days. It will decide for a generation who we are, Gingrich said. This is not a game of political chicken. This is not a bunch of juveniles. This is a serious historic debate and a serious historic power struggle. That's why there will not be an immediate resolution to this crisis. Here's how Republican Conference Chairman John Boehner, who would of course later be Speaker, put the terms of the debate. This is the most defining moment in 30 years in this town. And the question is, is it going to be business as usual or are we going to do the right thing for our children? Now, remember, of course, because you've listened carefully, written notes, and referred to them before coming to Volume 2, remember, we've just come through a big, huge Republican revolution. They've just taken control of the House for the first time in more than 40 years. This is a big deal. They've come to Washington to do big things, and there is nothing bigger than tackling the deficit, which has grown year after year despite Republican and Democratic administrations. So that's what Boehner's talking about with the children Okay, there was a time when the Republican Party was focused constantly on fiscal responsibility and spending restraint. And in this case, Bill Clinton was too. He just believed it had to be done through different methods. This, of course, is not, not so much of a concern in Washington anymore, particularly for the Republican Party, which controls Congress. There's almost no talk of the debt and deficit in any serious way, except from a few budget hawks uh, who still have hold offices. But the notion that difficult actions would be taken to ameliorate uh, the effects of the debt and deficits, uh, well, that's just almost impossible to find. So what was the scope of the Republican ambition? Well, they wanted to balance the budget in seven years by reducing expenditures for programs like Medicare and Medicaid and the Earned Income Tax Credit and other uh, whole, a whole host of other programs. The idea was to A, make them more efficient, B, send money back to the states, block granite, let the states use the money more efficiently. That would lower federal expenditures and also deliver better outcomes. That was the Republican theory. The Clinton White House team and the president thought the cuts were too deep and they were happening too fast. But the Clinton team wanted reductions itself. They wanted smaller reductions differently distributed, and they wanted a 10-year path to balance. Those two uh, differentiations or those two differences in year span of the path to balance will be important later. But let's remember here that despite the fact that this was a fight in which the president would use Medicare successfully to put Dole, the Republican leader in the Senate, and Gingrich, the Speaker of the House, in a pickle and in a bind and in really in a corner, 
it was Clinton who had requested $124 billion in savings from Medicare, and he had been accused by his own party of being a sellout. So we forget that the Clinton had, in fact, done some, some work here on Medicare as well. And, and that's, of course, important because the growth of Medicare and healthcare inflation, one of the things that Clinton was trying to slay with his failed health care bill, the rise of, and, and the, the increase in health care inflation, which well outpaces the inflation of other kinds of goods, uh, is what leads to the size of federal outlays required for future budgets. So if you can take care of Medicare, the theory is your budget balancing issues will be easier in the future. A theological battle emerged between Republicans and Democrats over exactly what constituted a cut. Was a cut a net reduction in constant dollars, or was it was it a cut if the nominal dollar amount increased year over year, but that increase took place at a slower rate than would have been necess- than would be necessary to keep up with inflation and population growth? And then again, what kind of inflation are we talking about? Are we talking about regular old inflation or medical inflation? The Republicans had argued for reductions that basically grew programs more slowly than they had previously been growing. Democrats called that a cut. Republicans said it wasn't a cut. This was the kind of debate that we were all thick up to the neck in uh, during these periods of intense budgetary fights. And budgetary fights are not just about numbers. They are about priorities and what a government should do and how it should best do it. It's the fundamental math behind Uh, the ideologies that people bring to Washington. And we are so whipsawed by the nutty, kooky, sidewinding fights that we have now that we forget that there was a time when the basic and big ideas that both parties stood for were infused into all of the daily battles uh, about uh, budgets and how government uh, should play a role in people's lives. Clinton thought the debate over numbers was part of a larger Republican strategy to starve the beast. Here's how he wrote about it in his memoir. If Americans saw fewer benefits from their tax dollars, they would feel, and here he's channeling what he thinks is the Republican thinking. If Americans saw fewer benefits from their tax dollars, they would feel more resentful paying taxes and become even more receptive to Republican appeals for tax cuts and their strategy of waging campaigns on divisive social and cultural issues like abortion, gay rights, and guns. Just to try and explain how he makes that connection there between starving the beast and the cultural stuff, I think his point there is that if people don't pay attention to policy debates because Republicans have starved government and made them less interested in policy debates, then government, then Republicans will appeal to them through cultural issues. Anyway, Clinton's belief was that Republicans were trying to starve the government so that people would think it ineffective and no longer have an appetite for the broken down puny thing that wasn't working for them anyway, namely government. Okay. This is how Clinton saw the stakes, which he writes about in his memoir. I was determined to stop them. The future direction of our nation hung in the balance. So just to recap, both key players thought the budget fight was crucial to the country's future, not just in the next year, but but its actual direction for many, many years to come. So, okay, that's the now we're going to go back to the plane flight. After Gingrich made his remarks, Democrats, of course, snickered. Now, Gingrich did have a kind of a point. He, the, the former speaker now sort of, denies that he said what he said. Well, he said what he said, but it had a point behind it. It wasn't just like, it wasn't just I got bad seating. I mean, that was part of it, as he admitted. He had a human petty response, as using the words that he used. 
But his actual point was this. If Clinton dismissed him on the plane and didn't talk about the budget, it meant he wasn't taking him seriously as a negotiating partner. If that was true, then Gingrich could expect fewer concessions in negotiations with the Democrats. And that means he would have gotten fewer Democrats in the horse trading and vote counting that would have been necessary to pass any ultimate budget and the appropriations bills that would be a part of it. So he concluded he would need more Republicans. And if he needed more Republican votes, then he would have to offer a budget that would actually get those Republican votes. So it had to be harsher. Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, who was also on the trip to attend the funeral, called Don Gingrich to, quote, quit whining. Let's get on with the real business here. And the White House Press Secretary, Mike McCurry, reacted with mock disbelief when asked about Gingrich's allegations of disrespect. Quote, you all know that they were going to mourn the death of an, and death by assassination of the Israeli Prime Minister, Yitzhak Rabin, McCurry told reporters at his daily briefing, and the speaker was treated with the utmost courtesy. In fact, so much courtesy that his wife was invited when other wives on this delegation were not invited. And until someone shows me the words in black and white, I will refuse to believe that the speaker said anything that, as you describe it, as so petty. I just fail to believe the speaker would somehow connect this to the current budget crisis. The moment was so bad for Gingrich because if this was a titanic battle for the soul and direction of the country, voters had to know that the champion of each side was stable and was doing the fighting for the right reasons. Gingrich's plain peak suggested personal impulse. Gingrich had previously said, referring to the negotiations that had broken down, this isn't a bunch of juveniles. But his reaction on the Air Force One ride suggested to people, well, uh, maybe it's a bunch of juveniles. So a lot of this episode, and the last one has been informed, by the way, by Stephen Gillen's great book, The Pact. Uh, The Pact is about Gingrich and Clinton and their relationship, and it's very good at putting both men in their fights in time and in context, and I really recommend it. Gillen's book shows that there was more going on behind the scenes uh, than meets the eye. We didn't want them hanging out unsupervised, (laughs) White House congressional liaison Patrick Griffin told Gillen. Uh, We did deliberately avoid discussion of the budget on Air Force One, Stephanopoulos confessed, because of our continuing worry that Clinton would see too much in private negotiations with Gingrich or Dole. Leon Panetta was charged with preventing any budget talks from taking place during the trip. Another little piece of great detail in the book is that Gingrich had planned to release an upbeat statement at the conclusion of the trip that would have read, if they can make peace in the Middle East, we can get together in the U.S. on the budget. Gingrich never had a chance, of course, to make those comments. The ones he did not only helped Clinton, but they roiled the water cooler in the GOP House conference. He picked the wrong bloody moment to take out a 357 and shoot both kneecaps off, said a House Republican. Gingrich could get everybody elected in 1994, but conservatives in his party thought he was blowing the governing part. And Clinton recognized this. According to Bob Woodward's book, The Choice, about the 1996 presidential campaign, when Clinton heard McCurry had offered to give Gingrich M&Ms of the kind that they have on Air Force One as a way to make him feel better, the president was upset. Though I should say he wasn't so upset that he was unhappy that the White House released a photo showing that Clinton had in fact talked to Dole and Gingrich on the plane. It just hadn't been about the budget. Don't kick him too hard when he's down, said the president to McCurry. We can't. Ultimately, Clinton wanted a deal and Gingrich was somebody he could work with. He told McCurry, we have to be very conscious of Gingrich's standing. He's the only one that can pull it together. If we get something and we put it together, he's got to be able to sell it. 
this reminds me a little bit of George Herbert Walker Bush and how he reacted to the fall of the Berlin Wall, conscious of putting too much pressure on Gorbachev for fear that Gorbachev's conservatives would uh, react negatively uh, and that would give Herbert Walker Bush less room to maneuver in dealing with Gorbachev. Remember at this point in the government shutdown that Clinton doesn't know how the political ball is going to bounce. They might very well have needed Gingrich to help them out of a political pinch. And they'd rather have the quasi-reasonable Gingrich than the more conservative and less reasonable Majority Leader Dick Armey or Republican Whip Tom DeLay. Meetings at the White House in the early days of the November 1995 shutdown between the president and congressional leaders did not go so well. Gingrich complained that Clinton had already started running ads for his 1996 re-election campaign that portrayed Republican budget cuts, particularly on Medicare, as unnecessarily draconian, and again, particularly on the elderly. Clinton's team pointed out that Gingrich had come to power in 1994, uh, describing Clinton and his wife and Democrats as evil. At one point, Clinton told House Majority Leader Dick Armey, even if I drop to 5% in the polls, if you want your budget, you've got to get someone else to sit in this chair. But Clinton wasn't likely to drop that far into the polls. One poll at the time showed that he had a 17-point margin. Americans trusted him by 17 points over Republicans on the issue of Medicare. This is from Steve Kornacki's book, The Red and the Blue. 49 percent of Americans blamed Republicans for the shutdown, and only 26 percent said it was Clinton's fault. By a 48 to 43 margin, they approved of Clinton's handling of the budget battle. For for Gingrich, the spread was the opposite. 22 to 64 percent was his handling, so he's 40 points underwater. Each side, though, thought the other would pay the political price. But after six days, they thought, eh, we've had enough pain, and they agreed to get back to business. So they hit the snooze bar for a month. That opened government back up, and they went back to work on a deal over the next four weeks. To get that progress, Clinton agreed to the idea of a seven-year budget, down from his preferred 10. And the Republicans agreed to some vague protections for Medicare, uh, Medicaid and environmental programs and that kind of thing. It was an agreement kind of in principle, and it started to be debated, and the terms of it uh, hotly debated almost as soon as each each side spoke to the cameras about what they had actually agreed to do. This is not an unfamiliar thing in Washington where there's a kind of a phony agreement where Everybody says they've kind of agreed to something, but when you press them on it, they haven't really agreed to very much at all, and there's still quite a lot of debate. But it allows everybody to get to the next stage of negotiating, and in this case, allows people to go back to work who work for the government. We're not; It's not unlike what's happening in the, in the government shutdown uh, of the winter of 2019. At this point, after the first budget shutdown, Clinton tried to bury the hatchet with the speaker saying to him, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have, uh, I would have you come to the front of the plane for a drink. So the first budget uh, shutdown is over. Now they got to get to negotiating or the place is going to shut down again on December 16th. So in early December, Gingrich tells a closed-door meeting of his House Republicans that he had thrown one too many interceptions and it was time for him to, quote, sit on the bench for a while. Christopher Shays of Connecticut, who is what uh, used to be referred to uh, as a moderate Republican, said, we want him, him of course being Gingrich, we want him to pay more attention to his personal conduct and don't give Democrats ammunition. In the negotiations on this second budget shutdown, or I should say in the negotiations leading up to what would ultimately be the second shutdown of this, of this period, 
Gingrich confirmed to Clinton what Clinton had intuited earlier. At one point, Clinton asked Gingrich for a continuing resolution to keep the funding of the government going while they tried to work out a compromise. And Gingrich said to him, if I go back and try to get a long-term CR without a budget from you, the next time you'll be dealing with Speaker Army. Now, speaking of other people, we should mention the other crucial player in all this, and that's Bob Dole. He was getting ready to run for president against Clinton in the 1996 presidential campaign. And he had a hell of a balancing act. He wanted to balance the budget and show Republican voters that he'd been an adult actually delivering on the accomplishments, uh, as opposed to, say, Gingrich's rowdy bunch, basically saying that Dole was able to deliver stuff. Gingrich was a big thinker and certainly had gotten everybody elected in 1994, but the Dole was kind of an adult, smooth, calm, kind of proceeding up forward in measured steps. While he was trying to do that, of course, he was paying the price for being associated with the negotiating team that was losing and associated with Gingrich and his plain comments. On the other hand, Dole could only get so far from the GOP party line because Senator Phil Graham, a Democrat who had switched parties during the Reagan years, was running for the Republican nomination. And he was running from Dole's right, supported by conservatives who thought Dole was a moderate, kind of a capitulating centrist, a Washington dweller. Uh, and that was the kind of person that the Gingrich revolutionaries had come to replace. So you had this huge influx of conservatives in 1994 still feeling their oats, still trying to beat Bill Clinton. And they're saying, wait a minute, we can't nominate just a regular old old-fashioned Republican in 1996 against Clinton. We've just – we just won all these races in 94. This is the energy and, and thrust of our party. Why would we cast it aside and go with Bob Dole? Well, throughout the first shutdown, Dole had been trying to ride these two horses, look like the statesman that he was, but on the other hand, supporting Gingrich so that he didn't get outflanked from the right uh, uh, from Phil Graham. But when it came to the second shutdown, which took place because they couldn't find an agreement on things by December 16th, that's when Dole broke. And he said, I think it's time for adult leadership and it's time for the principles to be principles. And we're prepared to do that. This is not an exercise uh, that we want to take up through the rest of this week and all next week. But if necessary, I think the American people, uh, once it's done and once they see the benefits, will, will thank us for staying here and getting our work done. That's what we get paid for. Meanwhile, the budget talks, which are, uh, you know, going on, there's constant meetings in, in the White House and conference calls and meetings in the Speaker's uh, offices and Dole's offices. They... Um, Gingrich and Clinton would go through this kind of back and forth thing. Uh, Here's how Bruce Reed describes it to Gillen. My most vivid memory of the two of them together was during the budget negotiations after the second government shutdown just before New Year's in 1995. Throughout the meeting, Clinton and Gingrich were whispering to each other, nudging at each other, nudging each other at points people made. But then, as if they seemed like co-conspirators, there were also other quite highly uh, explosive moments. Just as they'd been close, Gingrich would explode, as he did on the phone during one meeting to Clinton. He grabbed the phone and screamed at Clinton, you're a lying son of a bitch. Come on, Newt, lighten up, the president said. Referring to the recent edition of Time magazine written by Karen Tumulty, the president noted, you're man of the year. Dole was stunned by the whole back and forth, and he told Gingrich he'd never heard anyone speak to a president in the United States like that, to which Gingrich responded, well, we've never had such a lying son of a bitch as president before. Can't argue with that logic. In the end, the second shutout kind of petered out. Dole saw that basically his presidential poll numbers were dropping like a rock, 
And he worked to get the government open again. And Gingrich kind of recognized defeat, too. He confronted his conservatives in trying to get them to vote for the second shutdown deal. If you don't like the way we're doing it, run for leadership yourself, he told his conservatives. Clinton, uh, in his memoirs, quotes Gingrich as telling him, We thought you would cave. Essentially, going into these two budget fights, the Gingrich folks, with the huge wind of the electoral victories of 1994 at their backs, thought that they could basically hold their line and that Clinton would would crumble under the pressure. Um, And they were wrong. (laughs) I'll tell you what killed us, Dick Armey said. In 1993 and 94, the Democrats killed themselves because they were too full of themselves. And in 95 and 96, we killed ourselves because we were too full of ourselves. Gingrich had misinterpreted the results of the election and oversold the revolution. And that overselling and that inability to deliver would leave a fissure in his relationship with conservatives that would haunt him for the rest of his speakership. Gingrich didn't understand, observed the National Review's Rich Lowry, that he was elected speaker rather than prime minister. In the end, Gingrich would say that the shutdowns were worth it. It generated a level of intensity that shifted government. Bill Clinton turned into a triangulator to show that he was a new kind of Democrat after having been branded in the early part of his first term as a doctrinaire liberal. And after the fights with Gingrich over the budget, he moved still uh, with Republicans towards welfare reform, uh, and he also uh, moved to several times balance the budget and sign uh, budget deals with Republicans because the national political mood that he was trying to to answer was in part shaped by those government shutdown fights. Even if you say that Gingrich and the Republicans lost, they nevertheless teed up fights about the size of government and the role of government uh, and the responsibilities that put a certain kind of pressure on Clinton that made Clinton a more centrist Democrat, the kind he'd run on in 1992, but he wasn't governing as. Uh, So it turned Clinton into the kind of president and politician who could boast this in his 1996 State of the Union address. The era of big government is over. Whatever the historical truth of it is, there's no question the blunt confrontation and the legislative action that followed afterward, uh, after 1995 budget shutdowns, represented considerable activity that came out of a period of government shutdown. Stakes were high, the issues large, and both sides felt compelled to produce achievements of some kind. This all cannot be said of the shutdown of the winter of 2019, which has come to its first conclusion as we finish recording But nothing very large can be said of it. Before we leave you uh, for this episode, let's return to that lead again and that plane ride. Remember the breakfast with reporters where Newt Gingrich explained how he felt human peak at the president for treating him shabbily? And that this, of course, put the tough measure in front of the president that the president had certainly had to veto. uh, And that this was all the result of bad and shabby treatment on a plane. Well, the day where Newt Gingrich explained that, where his private impulses spilled out into the public and weakened his negotiating position, that very same day across town, the very same day that the speaker was giving in to his impulses, Bill Clinton was giving in to his. The president, on the 15th of November, 1995, invited an unpaid intern who was filling in on the skeletal White House staff to join him in his private office for their first dalliance. Her name was Monica Lewinsky. That's it for this edition of The Whistle Stop. 
podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word, helps people think that we are held in high esteem in the hearts of our fellow men and women. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher and in-house historian is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And Elizabeth Hinson is the master manager of all research and provides the patient spirit in the Google document. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helped make this episode happen on the CBSN. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a few weeks. (laughs) 